Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 89. Find pasture walks, find workshops, other farms to visit. There are so many things that you can learn from going to visit other people's places. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. You're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating costs. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy-to-follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, they can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at noble.org slash grazing. It's N-O-B-L-E dot org forward slash grazing. Be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you. On today's episode, we have Jen Kobe of Howling Wolf Farms in Vermont. We talk about her journey to where she is today, grazing sheep, improving land, as well as her podcast, Choosing to Farm. You'll have to check it out. It's a really great episode, especially for those people interested in sheep because she tries to help me. I always need some help. So stay tuned to talk to her. But first, 10 seconds about my farm. And in fact, for this week, we're going to talk about two other things. We're going to talk about the podcast in 2023, as well as the Grazing Grass community. In 2023, we released 43 episodes, and we had almost 100,000 downloads. So thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. And as always, you find something useful, share it with someone. It's the way we get the word out. I was a little disappointed in one thing. Our downloads were 99,000. We were so close to hitting 100,000. So, but that gives us a goal for 2024. So we'll see how we do then. Secondly, the Grazing Grass community on Facebook. If you're not part of it, I encourage you to join it. Do answer the question so I know you're real. But it is a growing community of like-minded individuals. And we had a post that just got posted just recently that really hit the mark when I thought about this community and why we needed it. Tracy Rumsky posted that they're looking for a mentor. They've got some land. They're trying to, to figure out this commercial cattle thing. And they're thinking of the custom beef journey, but they need some help. They're new to intensive rotational grazing and figuring out what's going on with adaptive grazing. And Tracy made a post on the grazing grass community asking about a mentor. It had great discussion. Some people in the local area has volunteered their help, which is wonderful. They can reach out and get some help. You know, we're all in this together, wherever you are on your journey. And through each other, we can help each of us take that next step. So Tracy, good luck. If you need anything, I'm here. Noble Research Institute has released their dates and starting next week we will have those dates listed in the coming events section. If you're interested in looking at those, just go to noble.org and look at their grazing courses as well as their other courses and you can find out if they have a course coming towards you in the near future. Once more, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for a fabulous 2023, and I'm looking forward to a great 2024. And we're kicking it off with a wonderful conversation with Jen Kobe. Let's talk to Jen. 
Jen, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're here today. Thank you so much, Cal. I've been listening to some episodes and I really am enjoying them very much. So it's an honor to be here. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Jen, can we start out by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Absolutely. So Jen Colby, I'm located in central Vermont. I primarily raise sheep in a grass-based situation system now. I've done a little bit of everything in terms of livestock except dairy. I used to work in dairy, but I've never actually been a dairy oh, yeah. farmer. <laughs> but um, uh, but at this moment, I've sort of my my whole emphasis these days is to simplify. So uh, our operation is on about eighty eight acres. I am managing the animals through about twenty five open acres um, and woods edges and things like that. And um, we're running a group of about. 30 to 50 animals annually. And we only graze. We do not make any hay. I buy in all of my hay. My whole goal for this farm is to bring it back from a severe overgrazing for multi-generations <laughs> situation. So we lost a lot of topsoil down those hills. We have bare rocks in the middle of our pastures. And so oh, my yeah. goal is to bring it back into productivity and my major tool these days is, is my sheep. And one thing I'd read on your podcast is that you have steep land. So um, yes. <laughs> I have not traveled to the New England area, have seen some photos, but yeah, just the layout and your land there. <laughs> so our, our slopes range between, ooh, I think we probably have steeper slopes, but they, they run, most of our pastures are 9 to 13% slopes. Oh, okay. So they're not horrible they're you know but right. we do have some good 35 to 40 percent slopes too oh. <laughs> a few of those as well but, but basically our our farm is steep enough that according to the soil survey and you know soils maps we don't have any agricultural soils officially and that's largely oh, due yes. to the steep slopes they just disqualify as soon as they get too steep they become non-agricultural soils which has been an interesting yep. thing, both for management and also for opportunities that are available too. Oh, yeah. Now, jumping back to just a few years ago, long ago for me, but just a few years ago for you, how'd you get your start in agriculture? Oh, goodness. So this, this, oh, this is a long jump back, you know, <laughs> for both of us. So I, I consider myself to be a returning generation farmer. Uh, my my great grandparents were dairy farmers, and you know prior to that, multiple generations of, of farmers. Lots of them were just diversified, you know, in this area. Oh, yeah. Lots of folks with small farms, and it comes from both both sides of my family. Um, but the last couple of generations, my dad and, and grandpa were in the in trades, electrical oh, and, yes. and construction. Yeah. My dad was a contractor, and so I knew that I loved animals. I knew I wanted to to um, go to school to be a veterinarian. Yes. What I didn't realize after going, getting, getting my animal science degree, I didn't realize that actually what I really wanted was to be a farmer. Thought that if you wanted to work with animals, you had to be a veterinarian. <laughs> Thought yes. that it was a one-way yeah. thing. It's not a one-way thing. It's not a linear path. And so out of college, I started working for an organic dairy company that was very small. And over the next few years, it grew tremendously. I was supposed to work on that farm. I did not work on that farm. I worked in the office. Oh yes, it, the office just sucked me in, and the and the farm never got me, which is which was a real bummer. Um, and then I just decided in the course of time while I was working for that for that dairy farm and and dairy company that that I I wanted to start my own something. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what animals I wanted, but they grazed because they were organic dairy. I thought grazing was really cool. I thought it was really smart. And I had a background in animal science and environmental studies, which oh, yeah. in the 90s was sustainable agriculture before we actually call it sustainable agriculture. Yes. Yeah. So there's actual degrees for that now, but I sort of mushed it together at the time. And what I realized was grazing solves so many problems at once. It solves environmental problems oh. and you know, culture and community problems and happy, healthy animals. It just, I was a convert in, in my early twenties without a farming background that grazing was the way to, 
be. I didn't know how to do it, but I knew that it was the solution and I knew it was what I wanted. And so in, in the late 90s, we, we bought a property and started doing a few little homestead things on it. I really consider myself as starting actual farming around 2000. That's when we got pigs and we started to sell to other people. And we had oh, pigs yeah. and we had chickens and we did a couple of sheep, which were total crash and burn. And I said to my husband, never, ever shake me if I ever say I want to get <laughs> sheep again. Anyway, then there's a whole story there, but <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I've been a sheep so. farmer for about 15 yeah. years now. Um, so, but not that kind of sheep at that, not that kind of sheep, but, th but then I tried a bunch of different things. I tried gardening. I didn't like gardening. As soon as the chicks came in the spring, I ignored all of the plant starts and I didn't oh, weed anything yes. anymore. I was willing to move animals every day, but I didn't want to weed a garden. <laughs> so, <laughs> so a lot of that was just testing things out and trying to grow a little bit. And we were at that location for about 16 years um, and we came to a point of deciding whether we had an old house and we had, and, and that was an awkward farming situation right on the road. It was really rough. And we had to decide, do we invest in this house? Do we invest in this location or do we move? And do we find a new home that's the right home for really leveling the farm up, making it a real business, just all of it, like taking it much more seriously than, than we were. And we rented for a while. We took our sheep to a rental house in town. Um, we were very popular, especially at lambing time. And, the, yeah, and then, I imagine so. <laughs> we, really were, we really were. Kids with bait, you know, like people with strollers and stuff would come by the lambing pens, you know, at our rental house in, oh, in this neighborhood. Just, just on that subject, I live out in the country. And of course, you know, all around me, there's, I'm trying to think between me and town, there is a guy that's got some goats, a few. But really, everybody's beef cattle. Lambing season or kidding season, people stop out in the road all the time. Yeah. It's like what you don't see all the time, right? I mean, that's... Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and for us, we had moved from a rural location. We were on 40 acres, 20 minutes outside of town. We rented at a house in town that happened to have a couple of acres next to it. And, but it was a neighborhood... <laughs> It was not a thing that they got to see very often. Oh, you know, yeah. And we were there almost almost three years while we were looking for the right farm. And, and we've been at oh, the yeah. right right place now for about seven years. And so this is a much better fit for us. So so the upshot well, of all of this is I've been part-time farming for most of the last 20 plus years while I've been doing other things as well. Oh. Yeah. So I was with Extension for a long time and worked for the for a nonprofit for a while. I picked up all different kinds of skills that I use in my grazing, actually. Oh, yes. One thing you'd mentioned there was you'd start out, you tried a fair number of different species. You even tried sheep and decided no. And, now, <laughs> and then you came back to sheep. What caused you to come back to sheep? So to best understand why I came back to sheep is actually to give you the context of the sheep that I had to begin with. So I thought sheep are interesting. Sheep are cool. Sure, I'll try them. I had the opportunity to get some free sheep. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm a fan of free, but that's gotten me in trouble before. So, yeah. So afterward, I had someone say to me, free sheep are never free. And they were absolutely <laughs> correct. Um, and I, I didn't know anything really about sheep. I didn't mm -hmm. really understand their behavior. I had worked with pigs for a long time and chickens and turkeys. I'd had a lot of poultry, and but I, I hadn't, I had not worked with sheep and I didn't understand their flightiness. I didn't understand parasite oh, yeah. management. Um, mm -hmm. These were cast off ram lambs. That's why they were free. They just wanted them to be gone. And four out of the five of them that we had died on their own schedule, not my schedule. And, and they were all wool sheep. And so they got wet and they got full of burdocks and they just were a complete mess. Oh. And I'm pretty sure at least one of them, if not several of them, died of fly strike because of the wool and wetness and just all of it. Then fast forward a few years and I was working for University of Vermont Extension and my job was to do outreach and education for grazing and livestock farms. So 
oh, over yes. the a course of my career at Extension, I, I had the opportunity to, to do workshops on over 300 farms and just, you know, learn from them and see different situations and, and just pick up that tidbit. And so we were doing a workshop early in my Extension career at a Katahdin sheep farm. Oh, yes. Quite close to me. And he was describing, you know, how how great these sheep were and, you know, not just the parasite management, and which is certainly a piece of it, but the the lack of requirement to shear them and just the, a lot of the thing, the fact that they're a flocking breed. That, that oh, when yes. one gets out of the fence, you don't have to lose your mind because one is just going to stick around the rest of the fence. It's not a big deal. Yeah, or they're all out. It's, or they're all out. All Absolutely. Or none. <laughs> it's exactly, which is great because usually when they're all out, it's much easier to get them back in than when there's half. Oh, in yeah. Half. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I fell in love with these sheep from this particular farm and, and ended up. And I said, boy, I think I might be ready. I might be willing to get sheep again if I could get some of your sheep. This is the conversation I had. Oh, yes. And a couple of years later, he called me up and he was going in for shoulder surgery. And he was going to keep some of his ewe lambs, but he was going to sell all of his breeding ewes. And he saved four really great ones for me. And they were the founders of my flock. And I still oh, have wow. descendants from those from those four ewes. And it is literally because I had the wrong sheep in the beginning, and mm -hmm. now I have the right sheep that fit my needs. We don't have to dock tails. I actually rarely even castrate. They're so well-mannered man that they're so easy to manage. I just I adore these sheep so much, so much. Interestingly enough, I have a similar story, but it's about goats. When I first got meat goats... A local person had some goats for sale, and and they could have been show goats because they were into showing. And in fact, I know some of them were these these weren't quite the show quality, but they were they were definitely boars that were bred for that. So I purchased a handful of them. They were really good. In fact, still impressed with them as boar goats. Not on my management side, but then. I thought, this is going so well, I need some more. So I started perusing Craigslist, and I came across a few registered Bordeaux for sale not too far from me. The price didn't seem bad. I talked to my wife about it, and, and we, we talked and weren't quite sure, and they just hung around on Craigslist. They weren't going anywhere. And we talked about it more, and I ended up going and looking at them, and they didn't look all that good. But, you know, I used to make a little bit of fun of my dad. I'm still a little bit guilty of it, too, sometimes. Sometimes you go to a cell bar and you bring home a bargain animal, and a lot of times you, you doctor them, you get them turned around, and you're good to go. Well, I decided I'll do that with these goats. Obviously, if you're familiar with goats and sheep, I did not understand parasites in small animals, small ruminant. Um, that caused me a wreck. And it was, I got those few and a similar experience. And it, it, actually, I went to a goat workshop or goat day at Langston University in um, Langston, Oklahoma. And I went there and someone had mentioned Kiko goats. And I, I have my notes from that day because I'm really bad about keeping everything. And I have on there, look up Kiko goats. So that was when I started researching Kiko goats and I totally changed what I was doing. And luckily for me, I was just running those, those goats that had parasite problems right at my barn. I wasn't rotating them. They were right here close. So... When I got the Kiko goats, we I started using a much bigger land base and yeah. was able to not deal with that parasite issue I had then. That was probably the start of my end of having boar goats. It's easy to get there. I think so. And we're in a situation that doesn't seem like it's working. I think that as livestock people, like maybe it's us, but maybe it's just not a good fit. If Oh yeah. Maybe that yeah. animal just isn't a good fit. And I mean, I, I see that in, you know, there's, there's lots of 
there's lots of you know trends toward trying to to uh, transition large confinement dairy animals dairy cows into a grazing system and it's going to take generations because those are just not set up those are animals that they don't like their rumen isn't adjusted for that they i mean it takes time it's yeah. going to take some generations and right they were bred for that environment developed and they're for so that good at what they do yeah yes. which is not grazing <laughs> right. not walking exactly. around yeah. to go get their food yes yeah. yes yeah. yeah. So you got those, you got that opportunity to buy just a, a few Katahdins. Yes. Did you, at that time, you were still on your um, 40 acres that you'd purchased in the late 90s. Did you have infrastructure ready to start grazing them? Or where were you on that journey? So interestingly, all of, all of the locations we've been, I have primarily used FlexiNet fencing. Oh so, yeah. So we did at our original place. We I did, I did pay to get five strand put up in one area, and it we grazed through that in three or four days. So it, <laughs> it really felt like it wasn't a, a great investment. Cost effective. Exactly. Yeah. Like the it it cost a thousand dollars to put in. You know this. I mean, it wasn't even quarter of an acre, maybe or half an acre. It wasn't oh, very yeah. big. Um, and I and I certainly recognize the math works a whole lot better if you have a much larger oh you know, yes yeah a set of acres that you're enclosing, but it's interesting because because in that location I just started to use some flexinet fencing. That property was a really funny. It was forty acres, but it was two acres on one side of the road and thirty eight acres oh like yeah. successional woodland <laughs> on the other side of the road. And we were on a blind corner. Oh. So, so, so moving the animals across the road was a real challenge. So Sunday morning, five or six o'clock, I would like take a bucket and move the sheep across the road and we'd go up into the woods. And so th that wasn't an area that was going to be a good perimeter fence kind of an area. Oh, yeah. So, so and we didn't have a lot of um, shelter for them really ever. So we used hoop shelters. For them to just be able to duck into basically as mobile run-in shelters. We sheltered them in the woods quite a lot. You know, I fed them bales in different places as well. And we started to build up and improve, you know, different air in the winter, you know, through winter feeding. Oh, yes. And I just got to the point where I can put up fence pretty quickly. And I love the, the flexibility of it if there is an area that I really want the animals to be on for longer or something I want them to move around. It's very easy to put a jog in the fence if there's a seedling oh, yeah. or a sapling or something I want to protect. And it's funny because when we came here to the new farm, I, I have priced several times getting some perimeter fence sections that we can subdivide <laughs> and I keep finding myself not doing it. And I, I think no. I think it's because I like the flexibility of of using net fencing, which is oh, interesting. Yeah. I know some folks think thinks think that moving net fencing is sort of crazy. Um, but I, I look at it as daily exercise and a good excuse to go check on the animals and I see them every day and it's good oh, exercise. Yeah. I don't mind moving that fence as long as I'm not moving it through trees. It seems like all the trees on the lease land I'm using has thorns that just help the trees grab it. And it is, that is awful. When And and I'm not very smart, and this is another reason, because I think I should be able to put it through there, and I will work way too long getting it through the path I want it. And then I'm like, now I got to take it down. And it's the same problem again. <laughs> and and not only the the thorn trees are terrible, but if you get little oak trees, it's just about a foot tall. They are have <laughs> they an amazing. Yes, they do. They really do. Yeah. Uh, so if if I'm out of woods, I think it's great. But going through woods, I'd prefer not to. Yeah. I get that. I'm I'm trying. So it's interesting because the so at our new place, I have a. a Largely for parasites, and also because this farm has some areas of very slow recovery. I mean, oh, yes. we we tend to be we have a lot more moisture than other places, so we don't we're not 
you know, we're not in the cycle of really brittle recovery like some folks are, but I have some areas that I can only grace once or twice in a season and it's going to be 60 or 90 days apart from those, which has meant that we have a lot of seedlings that that come in and I don't have a tractor and we don't clip. So the animals, the animals are the tools or my, or clippers or something else. And so there are some seedlings that have come up that pine seedlings specifically that have come up and i've been thinking about how to use those areas maybe just cut the trees down the center of them so it is easy to put a net oh yeah and then use that as a as a living barn or oh yeah something else you know like how do we use what what is is naturally growing there to the benefit and not make myself crazy trying to run net through the trees. Because I oh, completely yes. agree with you. Running through the trees or bushes is just, that piece is a nightmare. <laughs> but I well, think we can my, do that. I think we can figure out what's oh, around yeah. it. I, I think that's a good idea. My my thoughts are, along that line, I keep thinking I've had goats in the area. It's trimmed up nicely. I need to get in there and trim all the sprouts, the trees that I'm not interested in keeping. And that's going to widen me some spaces, and then I would have paths through there. And probably the way to start that is to to decide on my main paths I'm probably more likely to use and do those first yep. before I get in there and trim a whole lot. I would love to go in there and do a lot of trimming, but it becomes a time issue. Totally. But eventually we'll get there. Totally. I, I have been looking at this as just a very long early end management Oh, yes. Now, one thing you mentioned with moving them every day, and this is a problem that people that move animals deal with, how do you water them? Well, interestingly, so we have a lot of moisture in our grass because it's pretty lush and moving them every day. They actually don't drink very much. So, oh, yeah. So I, I will bring a tank to them. I've actually, my my intention, because this is such a steep farm, it actually is a pretty good opportunity to gravity feed water over a good chunk of the oh, farm itself yes. from us from Yeah, you you really have nice slopes. We do. So how do we use that to our advantage cuz that's not what everybody has. So Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we put in we put in a spring tile, we put in a, a concrete a spring tile in the location where there was um, a surface spring with, you know, like old oh, school yeah. from from, you know, the previous generations on the farm, they had an open like a, a just a stone they it was a shallow spring and it and it was always always had water in it oh yes so we took that same spot and we dug it out we put a spring tile in it and that has not been consistent which is unfortunate because oh, that's sort of yes. the basis of my my watering system so what i end up doing most of the time is i have a small tank that i put in the back of my truck or car and take it Every few days, check in, see if they need water. I mean, I will move them every day, but as long as I move them, they actually get most of their water from the grass, and they're very, very happy with that. Oh, yeah. So, so anyway, so I end up, I, I do offer them water. Lots of times they have no interest in it because they get plenty in the grass. But if it's really hot or if they stay in the same place for any length of time, hmm. then I know that they're not getting water from the grass. That's when I will water them much more consistently. Or if we're doing any bale grazing and I know that they're getting hay because all of a sudden then they're not getting moisture. Oh, yeah. 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 So I balance it and I watch the animals. That's that's actually yeah. a, a big part of it. Well, just continuing on that subject, we talked about fencing and watering. What about mm-hmm. minerals? What are you doing for minerals for your sheep? So I, I switched this year and I think I'm switching back. So I've been using just a loose sheep mineral mix. I keep it in a tub in a small amount, and I just move the tub with them. Oh, yeah. And and I've got a salt block that's in it, too, so it's easy. It's just sort of, you know, like got a got a, a rope, you know, haul behind a rope, and I just oh, sort of yeah. tug, it, tug it up, or if we're moving right. from one large place to another, I usually put it in the vehicle. Um, so, and that has actually worked really well over the years. This year, I switched over to, like, a molasses mineral lick. and Oh, yes. They really just enjoyed the sugar. I'm pretty sure because um, kind of like be, me at a buffet. I was, I'm, same. I was like, <laughs> okay, you guys. I really am not knowing that you're getting your minerals here. I think you like, mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, I I think I prefer to 
to remove sugar from the equation and just have it oh, be yeah. the minerals and the salt and then they get then they're balancing but it was hard for me to determine whether what they were going for was the sugar the energy or they were going for you know i mean and whether it's out on the pasture or whether it's back in the barn they just they just go for it constantly so oh, yeah yeah. Um, because kind of because it's there. So, yeah, I think we're going to go back to a straight mineral so that they have a better sense if they're balancing their minerals. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I can see that. Yeah. We have some one of my neighbors in particular uses liquid feed for his cattle during winter, oh, which I'm always. I don't know that one. I'm curious about. Yeah, they they he has a a big tank out there with a lid on it and some well. When I was a kid, we had one that was a metal tank with a metal wheel in it, and the cows just licked the wheel and it brought it up. We never used it. Uh, it just held water. I guess yeah. when Dad bought the place when I was a kid, it was there. But these are plastic, and somehow the cows get to it, and they'll bring a, a small truck with a tank on the back of it and fill it up, which is interesting to me. I'm not familiar enough with it to to know any anything beyond that. That's what they're doing, and I just always think it costs too much money. <laughs> well, it was a, sure. it was a very interesting experience this year test, testing this out because the local store where I usually get my minerals didn't have the bagless minerals any longer, and so a friend of mine has been using these tubs, so they buy it in a pallet oh, at a yes. time for him. And so I said, okay, I'll try these tubs. And he's one of my mentors, very smart guy. I've learned a lot from him over the years. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do what John does. And and it's been really interesting because I I would go through, you know, one to two bags of dry minerals a year. And then I went through six or eight of these tubs at the price of one of the bags of and I, and I was like, OK, is this actually working? Oh, yeah. This is a constant challenge that we always have, right? Like when we tweak something on the farm, maybe things get better, maybe they don't. But we always have to balance whether whether the return on investment is is. Are we just throwing money down a hole or are we actually investing in the health of our animals? And it's not always easy to tell. It, it's I not because there's so many variables in there. And yeah. then it's not like, well, so I grew up on dairy. You know, if we changed feed, we knew the next morning. Right. And if we weren't sure then, we knew the next evening for sure. In education, for kids to learn, they've got to have immediate feedback. And with agriculture and when you're not using dairy animals because dairy animals provide you immediate feedback but most other livestock do not provide that immediate feedback and then you're you're looking back and you're trying to figure out what happened i talked a couple episodes about my pregnancy rate this year on my cows was lower than i anticipated well i'm going back and trying and figure out what it is and i'm looking over the past six months trying to figure out what i did wrong so i don't repeat it because right. I need a higher pregnancy rate. <laughs> so, yeah, that that's yeah. always the issue. So many variables and you can't just isolate it and it's not immediate feedback. So, yeah, I yeah. get that. Yeah. yeah. Now, one thing you'd mentioned earlier uh, when you're, you had the sheep on your first property, you used some shelters that you moved and you, the trees oh, yeah. for some shelter. Are you yeah. still using shelter with your sheep or are the trees providing most of the shelter? And the reason I ask, oh, yeah. because I find, and of course, I'm in a very different environment than you are. Uh, being in Northeast Oklahoma, I'm not as wet as you all are. I don't get the cold weather like you all do. I don't get the snow loads. My sheep don't understand the purpose of shelter. <laughs> now, my goats, if there is a drop in the county of rain, they run to the shelter. Yeah, It's crazy because I can tell exactly when a sprinkle hit. Because the goats take off to the shelter and the sheep never even pay attention. And even when it's winter and we've got snow on the ground, I feed some hay. The sheep are much more likely to be out spread, spread out grazing than totally. any of my other animals. That so, is so true. For, for my environment, I don't find shelters benefit my sheep. So I was just curious how it's working for you. Obviously, different environment, but yes. So the most shelter, like formal shelter we've ever had has been here at this new, at this farm. And, um, and we, 
all it has had for infrastructure when we came here and we still have it is basically a run-in shed. So it's got it's oh, yeah. divided into like one quarter is the back and three quarters is the front. The main U group is has a barnyard and, and they go in and lie down. This is in the wintertime. But lots of times they, they prefer to be outside. So back at our original at our original location, we had a garage, but I used that for hay storage. Oh figuring yes. that the sheep have their own coats and the hay you know, the hay needed to be protected. Oh, yeah. So so largely, so the sheep are fine in the snow. They they don't, they lay in the snow. They don't mind the snow. They don't graze well through the snow, which is one of the bummers of sheep versus cattle. Like we, we it's not as easy to do stockpile feeding, which is, oh, yeah. which is a bummer. Like I feel like I could probably extend my season much further, but sheep won't necessarily paw through crust. They'll go oh, down yeah. through some snow, but they won't, you know, they just, they just don't have the impact that cattle have that way. So in the summertime, we lamb out on pasture. We, we, we lamb now in, in the end of May through June. Everybody's outside. We use the trees strategically. We have some of these saplings coming up. Some of them I'm cutting down and some of them I'm leaving specifically. So we have a few shelter areas. Um, we oh, do have yes. some big mature, we have a few big mature hardwoods too. Those are really nice areas. Since I move them around, they often have shelter, but they don't always have shelter, but they're completely fine. I mean, we have thunderstorms in the middle of the summer and, and they're completely, they're completely fine. If I get the chance, I'll put them under the edge of the trees just, oh yeah, just because I'm nice, but not, you know, I'm, I'm, they're fine. They're fine if I don't. The biggest thing that is, um, you know, the biggest challenges are when we get a cold, wet rain, which here tends to be November, I would say, is like the worst time for that. Um, yeah. Or or like early April is like a cold, wet rain time. That's the time when the sheep really are happy to have a, sh a shed. Oh, yeah. But yeah. even when it's even when it's cold, they don't care. <laughs> I mean, even the I mean, the Katahdins, I mean, they still their coat still uh, will grow out to inch, two inches thick, and it's still a nice warm coat, even if they're not a wool sheep. Oh, yeah. 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 So those hoop shelters were literally like just enough for them to tuck into if it was cold oh, and wet yeah. and rainy and nasty. But otherwise, like, no, it other wasn't than really that, much for it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Yeah. One thing you had mentioned was lambing. Yes. And lambing for me, I have not figured it out. Because we go from zero lambs to a hundred lambs overnight, it seems like. It's just it's just a huge number. So early in my lamb journey, we castrated lambs early and then found that was too much work. So we castrated them when they were a month or two old. But I still tagged them as soon as they were born. Last year, we didn't do anything when they were born because... I was getting too many orphans because I'm interrupting that bonding time with those, with the ewes and lambs. And I haven't figured out a, a good way to do that because I want to know who lambed. Because if you didn't lamb, you've earned a vacation. And then if you do lamb, did you have a single or doubles or twins or triplets? I'd like to know that. And I, I don't have a good solution. Do you have some advice for me or how do you do that? I don't know if it's advice, but I will t I will tell you oh, what okay. has worked for me. I, I've got my system has gotten simpler and simpler over time. Like so because we used to lamb in March or April and we did it in the barnyard and I would weigh every single lamb and oh, yeah. keep an eye on them. And um, and actually our mortality has gone down since we now are out on pasture. What I typically do is I go visit. I visit my sheep once a day. I don't I don't tend Unless I have a bottle lamb, which I don't usually have. But if I have one, then I usually go up a couple times a day. But Hell I go yeah. to move the group once a day. I move them. I check to see if there are any new lambs. I snag them really. Well, actually, I don't usually snag them. I give them 24 hours. Because <laughs> I do want that bonding. Because I actually do want right. that bonding. Yeah. So, so I go, I go see... Identify if somebody has new lambs. I just keep a list on my phone. I've got like I've got the U, 
I am doing a lamb count. You know, this is number six, number seven, number 25, number 26. Mm -hmm. I have identify if I can, whether it's a ram or a you, and I describe its coloring because Katahdin's are all over the place for coloring. Oh, yeah. And so then the next day when I go back, I ear tag them so that I can keep track of them. And what's nice about that system is um, that I always know who's new because oh, yeah. every day everybody else has got their ear tags. So if anybody doesn't have ear tags, then they're new. Um, and then I, I usually try to give them that 24 hour occasionally if they're big oh, yeah. or if, if it seems like they're nursing well, like they're not wet. Right. And it's the first day that I see them. I might just tag them there then and there because so, clearly they're doing okay. Very simple. I don't weigh anybody anymore. Oh, yeah. I stopped doing that, too. I, my issue with doing it the day later, and this is what I'm trying to wrap my head around, is at like an hour post-birth, I can run faster than they can. <laughs> at 24 hours post-birth, I cannot. <laughs> That's super fair. Yeah. How are you catching them when they're a day old to tag them? Oh, goodness. They have really friendly sheep, I guess. Is that an end of the day? Is that a 12-hour? Is, is, there, is there an opportunity to maybe split the difference? You know, if most of your lambing and there takes... there might be. If, if yours is similar to mine, most of our lambings take place in the early early morning. Occasionally, there's an afternoon, but I'd say 80% oh, of yeah. them are early in the day. So if that is an end of the day, I'm going to go check and see who's around. Maybe that's a, a late day check instead of an early day check. And then you get somebody who's still slow enough to catch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 10 to 12 hours later after birth, I may still be in the race. Yes. Great. So we'll, we'll have to look at that and see. I like that idea of giving them that time to bond and then go ahead and getting them tagged because I did not like at all. I had the thought pattern that one um, people's told me this, and I disagree fully with this. They tell me, just leave the dry use and wet use all, all together, and you can tell them apart. I'm not that good. So I actually, I, I separate them just a little bit, but I try and do that without disturbing the, the lambs. And I use electronetting to do it, and it works really well, really easy. I move the whole flock, the lambs stay behind, and then I move the use with lambs in with them. So then I have two flocks just following each other, follow leader, which works out really well. Except, so I didn't tag last year, didn't castrate. And I thought later on, I will look at them and try and pair them up and figure out who had who and tag them as necessary then so I can just keep a little bit more track because I like to have that data. Um, I found I didn't have enough hours in the day to do that. Oh, yeah. So... <laughs> I, I, I like the idea of waiting a day and then go ahead and tagging them because it's yeah. really easy if everything's tagged to know what needs tagged at that point. But if you go a little while without tagging, then you're like, oh, dear, how how did there get to be this meanie needing attention? Yeah, even if I write down a description in my phone of what that animal looks like, when it's grown up, somehow they don't seem to, like, whatever I wrote down, is it gets oh, confusing yeah. later on. and. And I also, over over time, there, there have been a couple of years where something happened and I just wasn't, ear tags didn't come in or something happened oh, and I yeah. didn't have good tags um, at the time when they were young. And then so I've tagged them at weaning time. They're so much bigger. They fight. Like, oh, they're much yeah. more likely to rip the tag out. And even if I tag, have to tag them twice because I start with a lamb tag, and then I go to like a, a bigger flapper, you know, like an actual like scrapey tag. Um, oh, yeah. The post is the same size. So, oh, which yeah. is just fantastic because then I've already made an earring hole for their new earring. And it's it's so much easier in general. And and castrating, I recognize like lots of folks castrate or don't castrate for different reasons. I have actually found it to be very useful to not castrate. And I, I separate, I wean before they are mature enough that it's a problem. I wean them at about 90, 100 days. Um, oh, yeah. And it's not usually a problem. And I, it has allowed me to be flexible in renting out. A, there's a number of small flocks around. And 
So I will rent out a Ram Lamb uh, for oh, reading. Yes. We have ethnic markets here who actually prefer an intact animal anyway. And, and I don't find that they're particularly aggressive or um, they're not really jumping the fence. And I know that some, some breeds in some situations, like you need to castrate your males because they will absolutely oh, yeah. jump the fence. And that's actually, interestingly, not been my experience oh, yeah. for, this, for this group. Right, um, right. So keeping yeah. them intact has been no problem. And once we wean, we just have a male group and a female group and call it good. For me, since we've started doing, leaving them uh, uncastrated, and the the thing that that caused me to do that were was that I didn't see the market difference. Like if you take a bull calf to a cell barn and a stair calf, you get docked some. I do not see that with sheep. And then I was I sell a few out locally, and one of the the guys who they they buy a few head every year off me, they are very disappointed. I remember first when I sold them, they're like, and we have a little bit of language barrier, but they're like. Why is he castrated? They were very disappointed in that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I've quit that. Now, I do find I have a, I've got to make sure I get those ram lambs in a good pen to keep them from finding the ewes. And I do find that however many times I check them, I need to check them one more time to make sure I've got all the ram lambs out. So this year I did something different. I ran them through. I have an alley. I go through and check them. And I sprayed painted them, and and that really helped out. So I could identify if someone got out, or identified. Actually, this year I identified when I missed a ram, even though I'd ran them through twice. And saw him out in the pasture. I'm like, "There's no paint on him, and what's?" So I had to get him back in and get him out. Oh, good for you. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I keep thinking, and and for those people, I don't know. About you, and this this may be a great question for you. I found now I came from a dairy background, then beef cattle. I had meat goats, uh, fair numbers at different times, but sheep was a totally different learning curve for me. And actually, based upon on the the steepness of that curve or the slowness of my learning, it took me longer than I thought I would with sheep. I get, I really get. And I didn't make the, I mean, I had worked with dairy cattle and I worked with beef cattle, but I had not really, you know, done a lot of raising or hosting of them myself. But I'd done a lot of, I'd had pigs for a really long time and pigs move differently. They think differently and sheep are really different too. They have, I mean, pigs do not care if somebody, I mean, they are not a flocking animal. (laughs) <laughs> but not no they do not care whatsoever and they're not really afraid of anything so yeah but sheep yeah. are very different and i mean even when I was, you know when i was working in extension we we had a, a few dairy farmers cow dairy farmers who were looking at a transition into goat dairy as an emerging market and you know maybe a better pay price and so they were looking at retrofitting some of their you know equipment and and laneways and all their you know their all of their infrastructure and and they were looking at the goats like they were little cows. And they don't move like little cows. They don't act like little cows. Like, you should know this. I mean, you, I'm sure you know this because you have goats as well. Like, and I think that it was a heck of a learning curve for them. Wow. Yeah. And when we were, when we were renting in between, we didn't, we didn't bring pigs with us to town. That just seemed rude. But oh, we, yeah. but, and a little dangerous, like I, yeah. Sheep yes. are cute. If sheep are cute, if they get out of the fence, pigs are not necessarily right. cute when they're digging up your neighbor's flower oh, bed. Yeah, and they're oh. big. They're yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so we were. So we didn't have pigs for a few years, and then we got to the new farm, started grazing the sheep right away, and it was another year or two before I got pigs again here at our new place, and I had forgotten how pigs think, and I oh, tried yeah. to get pigs on on the truck to go to the butcher that first time and I was I it took me hours because I simply had forgotten how differently pigs think than sheep and oh, I set yes. up sheep loading systems really for these pigs oh yeah 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 they, they were not having any of <laughs> yeah no it's we've had I've had goats far longer than I've had sheep and goats I've always known was not miniature cattle but however when we got hair sheep 
I thought I could sort them like I do my cattle, and it turned into wrestling matches, and oftentimes I won, but I felt like I lost. And so, so we finally got past that, but that was a much steeper learning curve than I want to admit to, because, you know, I like to think I know animals and a little bit smarter than that. But anyway, it was a learning curve and it just takes a little bit of time. And speaking of time, it's almost time for us to transition to the overgrazing section. But before we do, I have one last question. How do you market your lambs? Oh, good question. So I market them in a few different ways. I sell live animals, both for breeding and for, for eating directly off the farm. So some of the other ways that we market for the lambs, go, we go to auction with some of them. Um, oh, at yeah. times we have, I send them to the butcher and we do a few of them as whole or half or retail cuts. The last few years, I really tried to narrow down the the ways that I'm marketing them. So I'm really only selling, you know, cut packages to longtime customers. I'm not looking to do a oh, lot of yeah. marketing around that. So the ways that we market the sheep are we do it live. We sell animals for breeding. We rent animals from time to time if needed, largely for breeding rams. Oh, yeah. I do sell retail cuts. I do packages. We do sell sheepskins. So, and I do a lot of ground lamb as well. So there's folks who want, you know, a fancy, you know, cuts package and there are folks who oh, just yeah. want, you know, burger night, easy ground stuff. Yeah. They tend to be different customers for me. Oh, I'm, yes. I'm trying to make it as simple as possible, you know, to to do the marketing because because my takeaway so this is one of the really interesting things and the benefits of having gone to, to ranching for profit and, and learning some different ways to look at my own numbers and understand where I'm making a profit and where I'm not making a profit is I, I did the math and I recognized that for the sheep to be a major profit center for me, I will need a lot more sheep and I would need oh, yes. a, a different model of, you know, a lot more land, which around here, um, largely that would probably be leasing land or it would be doing like a, a goats on the go, sheep on the go sort of a thing, oh, going yeah. to, you know, taking them to other people's places. And I recognize that those actually were models that I really wanted to do. So the sheep themselves aren't a huge profit center, but I look at them so much as the the land management tool for this property and nothing can graze this property like you know it needs to be oh, a ruminant yes. animal to be able to graze this property and to and to bring it back into production so there's a couple of other ways where it's not marketing the sheep themselves but their services and that's been participating in a couple of different kinds of projects participating as an ecosystem services payment um, that's being tested in Vermont. So we're participating in that. Oh, yeah. So it's interesting because I, I think that often we go back to, like in, in farming and ranching, we go back to um, the value that the animal produces through either, you know, the meat or milk it produces or the, the fiber. We're looking at right. the actual things it produces and not the services that it produces. And that's a piece where I feel like that's where I want to market in the future is just recognizing oh, yes. like the ecosystem services that these animals provide is incredible and is much higher value than you would think by just selling a few sheepskins. So. Oh, yeah, I can see that. And that's an interesting way to look at it that, to be honest, I really hadn't thought about it in that way. So, yeah, thank you for that. And actually, that leads us to that transition into our overgrazing section, because we're going to talk about a topic that, that talks about land management. So for today, I think we're talking about bell grazing. We are. I love bell grazing. It is like my, it's my, it has been between the sheep and bell grazing. They've just been the my most favorite combination land improvement tool. And I've done it in multiple locations now it is incredibly effective at our current location with the the really thin soil and the roughiness oh, yes. the ledginess we have incredibly acidic soils here and i've made very conscious 
choices not to lime, which is generally a soil science scientist recommendation for, you know, our acidic soils, because I actually want to see how much we can change just through grazing and not through oh, yeah. chemical application. And I'm also looking to see how we can change the landscape through bale grazing. So there have been areas that love to show you before and after pictures. <laughs> I recognize we're an audio podcast. It's not really that easy to do. But let's just say we've gone from some really amazing, really like poor, poor quality areas of moss and sedge and wild strawberry and not a whole lot of other stuff into some incredibly diverse orchard grass, red clover, white clover, you know, lots of forbs, really diverse, beautiful spots. And and they're five feet away from each other. And the difference oh, yeah. is is the bale grazing side of that. So and we've tried different models of doing it. We've we've tried the the bale set in one place um, with yep. the animals around it and the pros and cons to that. Uh, you know, you do get like a big ring. <laughs> yes. And there's some there's some smothering that happens there. But that ring also ends up being very, really productive the second year. Um, it does. Uh, and we've I, the challenge of sheep is and I have not really done a lot of this is unrolling a bale doesn't work so great with sheep because they pick through everything and the oh, bale will be yes. gone in a day. But I have adopted a little bit of a of a modified um, place the big bale and um, wrap a, a ratchet strap around it. They start to tear it apart. And then I pull off the outer parts of that and I and I throw them out. So we do get these oh, interesting okay. clumps. We do get more more oh. distribution. Thank you. That's exactly the word I meant. Yeah. So we get we yeah. get more distribution. It's not as concentrated as just the ring. Oh yeah. And so I've been very consciously picking places. And sometimes we put them in a sapling area with a net fence and we leave them there for a few days and those saplings are girdled and the hay is distributed. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, it's just a great system all the way around. I cannot speak more highly of it as a as a tool. Yeah. Very good. We and I think you'd mentioned earlier in there you purchase all your hay off property. I do. do you look for a certain kind or you like like me, I'm looking for something cheap that's still good quality? I would say that I look for what's available and I look for yes. what is some uh, reasonably easy to feed out for our situation. I have oh. I have some good relationships with several local farmers. Um, one is quite close to me. We we actually this year we're feeding a, a dry round bale, um, which I'm actually picking up every week from the farmer who has the storage for it. It's not usually oh. uh, what we have here because it's so wet here. We have even our yes. snow is really wet. So most of what I've been feeding in the winters for the last ten years has been siled wrapped bales so mm. they're a wet bale and and they're you know partially broken down uh they're typically from a dairy farm or a beef farm and, uh, and so these are some of their animals hay that that i'm buying which the sheep enjoy very much um, and we have not had we've not had any trouble um, feeding those i know some folks have concerns about about feeding you know a, a wet bale to sheep um, oh yeah but i but i've not had i've not had a bad experience with that they're just really heavy and we don't have a tractor. Oh, yeah, that, that would be a problem. And I'm very unfamiliar with feeding those. I have a neighbor who does wrap his, but most everyone here, it's a net wrap. It's dry hay. It's a net wrap. Yeah. I wish that we just had like a net wrap dry hay. But yeah, well, and, we, and we can't do that because they'll just rot here. Um, oh, yeah. So what yeah. a lot of folks do is they'll, they'll uh, create a pad concrete or stone they'll create a pad and they will stack up three or four high marshmallows um, oh yeah and they just yeah, they'll just go from there and so what i end up doing is my closest farmer that i buy from is just a couple of miles away and i just run down with my truck he loads them the plastic is not pierced until he loads them and then i feed them right out oh okay. and i just tip them out oh, of the yeah. truck yeah sounds like that's working uh, really well for you yeah. It's okay. You have to be creative when you don't have a tractor. Yes, you do. Yes. Yeah. Well, it is time for us to transition to the famous four questions. 
Same four questions we asked of all of our guests. And Jen, I hope you've studied. I have. Question one, what is your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? So, okay. So my very favorite one is uh, Sarah Flack's The Art and Science of Grazing, which is absolutely excellent. And I would say that a close, close runner up to that would be, well, both of them, but both of Greg Judy's books. I absolutely love those. I, I read them a oh, long yeah. time ago when he was a speaker for us in Vermont. And yeah, very inspirational for me. And then on, on that really technical side, I absolutely love Sarah's book too. Oh, yes. Very good. Excellent yep. selections there. Our second question, what is your favorite tool to use on the farm? I couldn't pick one. I was thinking about this and I couldn't pick one. So my very first answer is headlamp because there's oh, no yes. farming we can ever do without a good headlamp. And my second tool is really good, comfortable rubber boots. Um, rubber boots for walking in, rubber boots for, you know, going through long, tall pastures. When, oh, yes. when, my, boots, when my boots get holes in them, I am a very unhappy person walking through a wet pasture. Interesting enough. What is this? This is about episode 90. Don't quote me on the number yet. It'll be on the episode title. But I think that's the first time we've had either of those answers and both excellent answers. Oh, my gosh. Um, a headlamp. I'm trying to think if anyone else has said that. And it's possible, but I don't recall it. But I could really see the benefit of it. I don't typically use it. I've just never gotten comfortable with doing that. But I think it could be really good. Um, rubber boots. Growing up on a dairy, rubber boots were my favorite thing by far. And I couldn't stand them when they got a hoe in them. My environment's dry enough now that outside of just a few days a year, or, or it's probably adds up to a few weeks a year. It's not a great amount of time. I have a pair of rubber boots that I love being able to wear and stay dry. But on the dairy, oh, they were, they were a must. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I walk a lot. I do. I mean, because I do net fence every day. Oh, I yeah. walk a lot through wet pastures and I have tried bogs and buck boots and I can't remember, like thunderbolts or whatever, that, like a bunch oh. of those. And like, yeah, bogs. I've, those are my favorites. I've just. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Now, I, I really hate to make this next comment because it's going to show people how old I am, but I can remember. So the the dairy supply or the dairy processor, the co-op we were part of, they had a supply truck come around once a month. And we always got the rubber boots off the supply truck and they were like $12. When I go buy rubber boots now, sticker price shock is crazy. I'm like, how much? So that's just a side point. I can remember getting them off the truck. I love that supply truck coming around. I wish they still came around, even though I don't dairy. Loved it. But I $12 for rubber boots. It was so, it felt like it was nothing. And now I look at these prices and, well. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, we're moving on you. to the third question. And the third question, what would you tell someone just getting started? Find pasture walks. Find workshops. Other firms to visit. There are so many things that you can learn from going to visit other people's places and, and not just one-on-one. -on -one. And I think one-on-one -on -one is great because you get to ask all your questions. But what I particularly love is when you go to a workshop that's a pasture-based workshop on a, on, a, on a farm, and it doesn't really matter what type of livestock farm it is. But there will be other people who are more experienced who will ask questions that you haven't thought of yet. Like you may ask your question, yes. but, but there are things that you don't even, they're blind spots you don't even know. You know, there'll be tweaking of things that or just they're coming from a different perspective. And just, I, I think that the most influential thing for me on my farming systems today have been all of the workshops that I had the opportunity to be part of on farms through my extension career. And many times it was a situation of 
I think I'm not going to do that. Like, it's great to hear that. Somebody's asking all these questions. I've learned a lot. I'm not going to do that. That is just oh, yeah. as valuable as what I am going to do. Oh, or that little yes, tidbit I'm going to take back for my, my farm. Yes. But yes. those things that I'm not going to do, wow. Like, that's that's huge. So I would just say, like, go to workshops and, and go to conferences because you don't know what the questions are yet. At least not all of them. Very good. Excellent idea. I know oftentimes my best questions are three or four hours later. And usually at that point, I no longer have the opportunity to ask them. Totally. So, yeah, I, I love it when someone asks a question that I'm like, oh, that's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. Jen, lastly, where can others find out more about you? Well, awesome. So our farm website is we're at Howling Wolf Farm and it's howlingwolffarm.com. I also happen to have a podcast and you can find us at choosingtofarm.com. I chat quite a bit with folks who are first generation and returning generation livestock farmers and ranchers all around the country. And those are some places to get me. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook under both Howling Wolf Farm and Choosing to very good. We will put those links in our show notes. And Jen, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us today. Thank you so much, Cal. This has been so much fun. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them. And we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And until next time, keep on grazing grass.